0: let's pray together. Father, once again, we bow before you, acknowledging your greatness, your sovereignty, your wonder, and the reality of our dependence upon you in all things. Especially, Lord, especially when we open your word for you're beyond us in every way. And so as we worship You through the study of Your Word, may You attend to us this day. Accomplish in us what Your Word sets out to do. Help us to know You more. Help us to understand Your greatness more. Help us be greater witnesses for You because of who You are and because there is only life in Christ alone. And so Lord, as we study Your Word... Attend to our time for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's great to be back. I'll ask you to open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. You may have noticed now, after 73 messages in the book of Romans up to this point, we've made it to chapter 10. If you think that's a lot of messages, I have news for you. The late Donald Gray Barnhouse took 11 years to preach through Romans. So I'm doing pretty good, I think. I trust you're excited about what is to come in these last seven chapters. So let's begin today by reading this text together. And I want to focus our attention this morning on just verses 1 through 4 of chapter 10 as we are introduced to the basic contrast between the righteousness of doing and the righteousness of believing. Contrast between the righteousness of doing and the righteousness of believing, which both will help us understand in a better way the connection between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And I want to read verses 1 through 10, even though we are going to just spend our time in the first four verses. So Follow along as I read. Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, that is the Jews, is for their salvation. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For well, Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will it Descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. Because with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth He confesses resulting in salvation. Over the past several months, we have been drinking in a steady stream, if you will, of one of those Christian doctrines that seems to cause such a great struggle in our own minds and hearts and where we find ourselves oftentimes in deep thought. And of course, I am referring to the doctrine of God's sovereignty over every aspect of salvation. The sovereignty of God in salvation can be a struggle for us in many, many ways. Paul has been clear throughout Romans 1 through Romans chapter 9, and especially in chapter 9, to show us that God... Unless He does something to save sinners, then no one would ever be saved. Unless God does something, there is no salvation for anyone. In other words, because of the spiritually dead condition of our souls, because of our fallen nature, when we think and grasp, the reality of our own sinful position before God, and we begin to understand that unless God does something for us, then we will never be saved. And when we begin to understand that position before God, we then begin to ponder the way in which any person is saved. The Bible clearly says we are to believe upon Jesus Christ for salvation you and I have a responsibility and a requirement and a command from God to believe. In fact, here in chapter 10 of Romans, the word believe or the word believes or the word believed or some other word that's used to imply the idea of belief is used 13 or more times. in Verses 9 and 10, which I just read a moment ago, stated clearly that salvation is through belief. If you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. Because with the heart, man believes. It's clear, in other words, that without faith, no one is saved. There is only one way to be in the presence of God, and that is by faith in Jesus Christ. And yet we fully understand that because of our own sin... No one is able to believe. No one even wants to believe. And that is where we struggle. Because since God is sovereign in salvation, then how can man be held responsible for not believing? And even more so, more importantly than even that, we can easily begin to think, if salvation is all of God, then c'est la vie. What will be? Will be. In other words, if salvation is going to happen for God's elect anyway because God chooses whom He's going to save and sovereignty shows that God must do something because of depravity, we cannot do it on our own. We cannot believe if, God, if salvation is going to happen for God's elect anyway because of God's sovereignty, then there's no need to pray for it. No need to even desire it for other people. Because if election is so, and God is sovereign, then they're going to be saved anyway. And so we come to Romans chapter 10. And we are very surprised to hear the Apostle Paul start in the way that he does if we understand chapter 9 to be saying what chapter 9 is saying, that if unless God, doesn't, unless God does something, no one's saved, then we are surprised to see Paul start with the words he does in verse 1. I wonder how many of us here, if we were writing this epistle, would have started the way Paul does in chapter 10 and verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Doesn't that seem strange? I mean, after all, Paul, you have just spent an entire chapter of words, 33 verses, highlighting the reality that God is sovereign in salvation. That unless God does something... No one is saved if our salvation is completely contingent upon the sovereign purpose and plan of God. And if God, in fact, has determined the salvation of His chosen before the foundation of the world, and because He is the only sovereign God and nothing can thwart His ultimate plan, nothing is more powerful than God Himself Then logically Wouldn't it be right to say and to even live by saying there's no point in us preaching the gospel nor is there any need for us to pray for the lost since God is sovereign. In fact, we could even conclude that there is no need to evangelize at all seems to make logical sense, doesn't it? Why should we as a church, why should we as Christians spend our efforts on evangelistic endeavors if God is sovereign in salvation? Why should we as a church go to all the personal effort to pray for our summer program that is an evangelistic outreach program program, why should we strive to invite others to it? After all, God is going to save His chosen ones anyway and none will ever be lost. Why preach? Why pray? Why desire that others be saved at all since God is sovereign? Paul, why would you be saying this? Now maybe you're here this morning and you haven't really personally thought like that. But those thoughts are in the minds of some. Maybe you're one of those that it's in the mind of because it is a logical thought from our human perspective. It's logical to think that way from a human point of view. And we find an answer to those thoughts here in this text from how Paul thinks. First, let's be reminded as we think about the evangelization of the lost, this reality that we are to evangelize, let us be reminded of what we have heard in the past, particularly from Isaiah 55. Remember what Isaiah 55 said? God says to Israel, My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. I cannot overemphasize how important that verse ought to be in your mind. God is not like us. Just having that truth in our minds, having that truth ruling in our thinking takes us a long way in our understanding of the sovereignty of God and how understanding the sovereignty of God interacts with our Christian practices. What we do as Christians. Just to know that God is not like me. That He doesn't act like me. That He does not think like me. He doesn't reason like me. Just to know that helps me in myself to understand and keep myself in the right position when I may be confused as to why God says and does certain things that don't make logical sense to me. Knowing that God doesn't think like me, doesn't react like me, doesn't doesn't respond like me. Knowing that and keeping that in my mind, helps keep myself at a place when it seems like things are so confusing out here when I think about some of the doctrines of God. But also, one other thing that we must remember is not to let our feelings rule the day. This is a great problem in our day. Feelings have become the standard for which life is ruled in our day and age. In our day, if I feel that something is right, then it must be right. If I feel that something is wrong, then that must be wrong. Now, if that's the way you think in life, if that's how you carry out your life as a Christian, you know what's going to happen? Here's what's going to happen with you as a Christian. You're going to pick up your Bible... And you're going to read passages like those we've been studying over the last several months here in Rome. And you're going to read and think about those doctrines that we have been studying. And you'll begin to say things in your mind like this. Well, the Bible says that God chooses to save. And the Bible commands that man believe. And the Bible also says that man is dead in his trespasses and sins. So if man is to believe, then it doesn't feel right that God would command him to do something that he is totally incapable of doing. No matter if his ability to not be able to do it has everything to do with his own sinfulness. So when the Bible says that man is dead because you rule yourself by feelings, then you'll come to the conclusion that that must mean that man is just very sick. He's not dead, but dead means sickness. And so if I can just find a way to get man to see that he's just sick, then he'll want to know God, and when he wants to know God, then he'll do what God has commanded, and he'll believe. He'll choose God... Since after all, God in his omniscient loving kindness has chosen everyone anyway. In other words, what is ruling my life is how I feel about certain truths. And so my subjective feelings are what rules over what the scriptures actually say. This is a very grave and subtle danger for all of us. Why? Because we all have feelings. Feelings are God-given, created things. I'm thankful for feelings. I'm thankful for emotions. I'm thankful for those things that cause me to have empathy for other people and cause me to notice when I stick my hand on something hot and I take it away. They're actually part of what God gave to us for our good and for our protection, but they must never be allowed to rule Feelings can never be allowed to rule the day. We must rule, or what I'm sorry, what must rule them and what must be governed in them is the scriptures alone. Scriptures must rule my feelings. I must bring my feelings underneath the scrutiny of scripture and not vice versa or I will be in all kinds of trouble. The Bible alone should be enough for us even when, and especially when, our feelings want to go another direction. The Bible has to be the rule. And so this is the first lesson that we hear in the words of Paul here in chapter 10, even though it may feel as though his words are misplaced. Even though God is sovereign in salvation, notice, Notice, Paul prays for his countrymen. Even though God is sovereign in salvation, even though Paul knows that God saves those whom he chooses to save, and he will accomplish that for all those he's chosen to save, Paul prays for the lost. My brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is for salvation. I pray for thou salvation. Now think about that reality. Paul, the staunch believer and the writer of this book, the writer of the one whom we just studied in chapter 9 on the doctrine of the sovereignty of God in salvation, Paul is the same man who says to us, I am both desirous and I am prayerful concerning the lost fact, the implication is that it would be unnatural for us as Christians not to be praying and desiring salvation for others. It would be unnatural for us to do that. That's the implication here in the words of Paul. In other words, Paul was concerned about them and we should be concerned about others. Paul is concerned about his brethren in the flesh, the Jews, and salvation for them. And we ought to be concerned for that as well. But concern, listen, concern is not enough. Sadly and confessingly, I have concern for people and yet my concern hasn't driven me to the point to pray for them. You ever feel like that? You ever have that sense? You have a concern, but concern isn't enough. We have to, what must drive us to the place of praying for the lost is knowing that it is commanded of us to pray. It's commanded of us. In other words, why do we pray for the lost? We pray for the lost for the same reason that Paul and any Christian prays for the lost. God commanded us to pray without ceasing. God commanded us to pray, but that doesn't make sense. It doesn't need to make sense. You don't have to have your feelings in check to do that. You have to just be obedient. And that opens our minds to the principle in the Scriptures that there is a relationship between doctrine and practice that may not sometimes make sense to us. You say, what do you mean? I mean this, especially in this particular case, the doctrine of God's sovereignty. The doctrine of God's sovereignty does not mean that because God is sovereign, we don't pray or evangelize. The doctrine of God's sovereignty does not mean that we don't pray or evangelize. You say, why? Because within the purpose and plan of God, which is all made within and through the realm of His sovereignty, God has not just set forth the end, which is salvation of souls, which he chose to save. That's the end. That's the goal. But he has also purposed and planned the means to that end. And the means to that end is you and I praying and desiring that the lost be saved. That is simply to say this, even though God has seen fit according to his sovereignty to choose to save and to choose salvation for some, and God could quite easily save those without any of us. Right? Nothing's impossible with God, it says. But God has chosen to exercise his sovereignty through his sovereignly planned means. So because God has chosen to save, he has also ensured that salvation will happen through a specified means. We're going to see that means played out here in chapter 10. And it all starts with our heart's desire and prayer for the lost. God says. I'm sovereign. I have to do something in order for anybody to be saved. Man can't do it on himself. I'm commanding man to believe, and I know man won't believe because man is it's impossible for him to believe because that's what his sin has done to him. It has completely and utterly destroyed him in every kind of way, in his will, in his mind, his thinking, his emotions, and everything. He cannot, he will not, he does not want me at all. Therefore, I must do something, I have a plan, My plan is to save. I'm sovereign in that salvation. And the means to which that's going to happen is through these people who are going to pray and who are going to preach and who are going to desire to see other people saved. So, Because God has chosen to save, He's also ensured that it will happen. And see, otherwise, if that's not the truth in us, if that's not the truth of what the Scriptures teach, which it's clear that it is, then we become fatalistic. We become fatalistic in our thinking when it comes to the sovereignty of God, and we cannot follow our own feelings. We cannot follow our own fallen human logic. We will be in a lot of trouble. And so we learn from Paul right out of the gate that we must be longing for the lost. We must pray for the lost. Even so, it is God we understand who does the saving. Even so, man is still commanded to believe. We pray, God, make them believe. We pray, God, change them. God, open their eyes. God, make them see. And God's sovereignly ordained means for that belief is the preaching of the gospel. You notice what Paul says in the verse 14 and following of this very chapter. How shall they call upon Him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, verse 17. This is God's sovereignly ordained means. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. Foolishness to the non-Jew. But as Paul said at the very beginning of this gospel, it is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. So that's the first helpful truth here. We know that we must be praying for the lost. We cannot just be immovable in our own Christianity, in our own place, and sit there by ourselves and say, well, God will take care of it all. After all, He's sovereign. We cannot think like that. We cannot do that. But if we are not careful, we can easily swing the pendulum too far in the other direction. You say, what's that? What's the other end? The other end of the spectrum is the problem with the Jews. The problem with the Jews. They had zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Verse 2 says, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God but not in accordance with knowledge. The other end of sitting still and doing nothing as a Christian is a misplaced zeal for the things of God. By zeal, we mean activity. Righteousness by doing. The doing of things. And in particular, we're we're thinking about in our own heart the... Doing of evangelistic things. The Jews weren't seeking to evangelize, although they were in one sense. They were seeking to make proselyte Jews, other Jews. So there was an evangelistic endeavor even in them. Their zeal for God took them in those directions, although it wasn't according to knowledge. For us, it can do the same thing, even as a saved person. You say, what do you mean? Well, I mean this. The idea is that if the lost are going to be saved, then we must get busy doing something. This is the other side of the spectrum. One side is just sit still, don't do anything. God is sovereign. He'll save everybody. The other side is, well, if people are going to be saved, if I understand what you're saying, people are going to be saved, then we must do something. And by something, we mean anything. The idea is that it's better to do something rather than to do nothing. There's some truth to that. We can't just sit still, we have to be doing something, but we have to be very careful, because zeal, without knowledge, can be very problematic. Now, I don't normally bring books up into the pulpit, but I wanted to read a portion of this book to you because it highlights zeal not according to knowledge that has taken place within evangelicalism over the last several decades. Out of a desire to reach the lost, out of a desire to see people come to know Jesus Christ, in some kind of way, a couple men years ago back in Illinois started a church born out of a Bible study which started with youth kids And in order to reach the unsaved youth kids, they started this Bible study and made some adjustments in order to attract the kids. This was the beginning of what you may know to be named the seeker-sensitive movement. You may not have heard of the church, but the large church in Illinois that was a catalyst for all of this was Willow Creek Community Church led by a man named Bill Hybels. I want to read about the beginnings, just to highlight the potential of zeal gone wrong. Zeal gone wrong. This was the importance of seeker-sensitive services according to their philosophy. And again, it started in a youth Bible study, and so the guy doing the study and writing about the history talks about this Bible study at length, and he says, when Hebel's first Proposed to the youth group, this is where before the church began, we proposed to the youth group that they could invite non believers for an evangelistic meeting. The kids were hesitant. And after Heibels agreed to changes that would meet their concerns, two other suggestions were made. One individual recommended that the meeting have drama to make the teaching come alive, another proposed that multimedia could be used to communicate effectively. And what ultimately sold these program changes to Hybels and others was that they worked. And by work, they mean the first meeting that they had for seekers was a a meeting that attracted 50 to 60 kids. And those kids apparently made a commitment to Christ. It was near midnight that night by the time they prayed. And Hybels records his response to that night. He said, when it was all over, I went out back of the church and sat on the sidewalk alone, leaning back against the red brick wall. I shook my head. This is absolutely unbelievable, he said. Where would all these seekers be if we hadn't designed a service for them? Where would they be? If we didn't do something... We did something. We adjusted things. We changed some things. Where would they be had it not been for us? Wow. Wow. A zeal to see others get saved. A zeal to want to have people know Jesus Christ so you do anything, even if that means compromising the truth. One compromise after another. If I read more and more and more, it's one compromise after another. Bill Hybels had great zeal, but not according to knowledge. And the outcome of that misplaced zeal has had a massive influence across this country and across this globe within the church. In fact, several years ago, the emerging church movement started, which was basically seeker-sensitive movement 2.0. And then from that came even more radical stuff down the road. Listen, Bill Hybels was very sincere, but he was and is sincerely wrong. And that's what we find here with the Jews. Jews. They have a zeal, but not according to knowledge. It was rather sad yesterday. Yesterday several of us had the opportunity to go down and support Susan as she was there at her mother's funeral. And by the way, she did a wonderful job sharing the gospel with a church full of people who I'm not sure have ever heard the gospel so clearly. And I was thinking about that today, and I was thinking they had an entire communion service in this Anglican church. and the communion, they believe that the elements become the body and blood of Christ, constance, uh, uh, called constance. I can't even say the word, but it's what the Catholic church believes. Consubstantiation, there it is. Which is a heresy, by the way. They believe that, and I kept thinking as this strong of people were going forward, they have a zeal. The songs they sang were songs that you and I would probably sing. The, the scripture portions that they read were scripture portions that you and I would go, Oh, that's really great. They had a zeal for God. And I kept thinking, but but without knowledge. Without knowledge. Had a lot of energy, a lot of emotion, a lot of things going into it, a lot of movement, a lot of sincerity. Sincerity alone doesn't mean that it's right. Listen, zeal is the greatest common denominator of those who are in other religious cults. They have zeal. You ever hear that knock on your door? It's usually a couple people with a lot of zeal. In fact, they'll come in rainy weather, they'll come in snowy weather, they'll come in any kind of weather because the Mormons have a zeal for the things they're doing. Jehovah's Witnesses have a zeal for the things they're doing. Listen, Catholics have an insatiable zeal to go every week and have the priest forgive their sins. We've seen in our own country and around the world, radical jihadists have a zeal. They have a lot of energy, a lot of movement, a lot of sincerity, and all of them have a zeal for doing something. All of them are sincere in what they do. And all of them are sincerely wrong. We notice here in verse 2 that it's possible to be a person even with a zeal for the true and living God. And still be wrong. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. Paul doesn't say they just have a zeal for something, anything. No, they have a zeal for God. They got the law of God from God, it was passed down throughout the ages to them. They knew what God said, they had a zeal for keeping the rules. here's how Jesus describes them in Matthew 23 and verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Why? Because you travel about on sea and land to make one proselyte. Wow! I mean, you cross oceans. You go all kinds of places. I mean, you talk about missionary journeys, you talk about evangelistic endeavors, you talk about going places, that's zeal. And when He becomes one of you, you make Him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. What? I mean, that's zeal. That's zeal. Travel around the globe to make one convert. Paul knows zeal. Zeal. Paul knows it personally. He was at the top of the rung before his salvation. Acts 26, he says of himself, I thought thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all of the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme, and being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. Paul was the number one zealot. Go to Philippians, he says, according to the law, I was blameless. Paul saw himself and was going to do it better than anybody could do it. There was nobody more for quote-unquote the church than Paul was. And nobody was going to come against it. Anybody was going to come against it, he was going to make sure they felt the pain of coming against it. He was the first jihadist. That's having his sincerity to the task. Paul was sincerely wrong in what he was doing. He was doing something, but it was wrong. Now, let's not get the wrong idea in all this. Because if we're not thinking correctly, we'll get the wrong idea and we'll think zeal itself is wrong. Zeal is not the problem. Zeal is not the problem. I bear them witness that they have zeal for God. That's not the problem. That's not the problem. The zeal is not the problem. The problem is that it's a misplaced zeal. The right zeal is a zeal that always has its outcome being born from knowledge. Not intellectualism. Not higher educationism knowledge in what is right knowledge in what is true i want you to go back for a moment to romans chapter 6 romans chapter 6 beginning in verse 15 what then shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace remember we've We went through this in detail. May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, you're slaves to the one whom you obey? Obedience isn't the problem. The problem is, where's that obedience directed? Who are you obeying? If you're obeying sin, it results in death. If you're obeying righteousness... Or if it's obedient, sorry, if you're sinning, it results in death. If you're obedient, it's resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God, verse 17, that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to what? To that form of teaching which you were committed. Now there is the reality. You notice what happens there. You notice the order of what happens in verse 17. Obedience is the outcome of hearing and embracing the truth of God. True, real, right, purposely placed obedience is born out of hearing and embracing the truth of God. If it isn't born out of that, it's misplaced. In other words, true zeal or the right kind of zeal is a zeal that is born from the hearing and embracing of the truth of God. Go back to chapter 9 or chapter 10. This is where the Jews fell short. I bear them witness they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Not based upon or from the hearing and embracing of the truth of God, rightly understood. They had a zeal. They were doing all kinds of things. Matthew 25, they were pursuing people even to the ends of the earth in order to make them a proselyte, but it wasn't according to the truth. They never arrived at an understanding of the truth because they put obedience ahead. Of the truth, they misplaced a zeal, and that zeal became what defined them. They had a zeal for doing rather than a zeal for knowing first, and then doing. And here's the second principle for us to remember this morning: clear knowledge. Clear knowledge of the truth is necessary for salvation. Clear necessary of the truth is necessary for salvation, not misplaced zeal. You know what I'm saying? Understanding the truth is necessary for salvation. Misplaced zeal only takes you to hell. We live in a day when definiteness, when exactness is just not proclaimed anymore. It's not even desired. Our world doesn't like exactness. Especially when it defines life, the life of faith. It doesn't want exactness in that. In fact, the church at large today is quickly becoming an anti-exact kind of place when it comes to knowledge. Speak more in generalities. Speak more of general things. Just give us general truths. Why? Because we're lazy. We live in a world that wants everything now. We don't like effort. In fact, we love to be entertained. In fact, the whole millennial mindset today is get something for nothing. Get something for nothing. We want to take, but we don't want to give. And when it comes to salvation, the mindset is simply this. Give me my ticket to heaven, but don't require anything from me. Yeah, I'll believe in Jesus, but don't expect me to be committed to anything called Christian except for the name. You can call me Christian because it benefits me in some kind of way, but don't expect anything from me. Don't expect me to be involved in ministry. Don't expect me to be involved in the lives of other people. Don't expect me to be involved in the church in any kind of way. Don't expect me to reach out to my neighbors in any kind of way. Don't expect me to read my Bible or do anything that would show me to be a true believer. Don't expect any of that to me. I just want my ticket to heaven. That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. The gospel is exact. The gospel is clear. The gospel is the only way. And the Jews rejected the gospel. Look at what Paul says, verse 3. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. They refused to submit themselves to the righteousness of God. Why? Because they were being zealous about attaining their own righteousness. Don't tell me that I need to submit myself to Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ commands of me. I'm a good person. I go to church. I take communion every week. I go knock on those doors. I hand out Bibles. I speak to the Prisoners, I do all kinds of things. They completely misinterpreted the righteousness of God from the very beginning. It wasn't that they had no idea of what God required. That's not what is implied here in the, in the grammar of Paul for not knowing about God's righteousness. That implies in the English language that they were just clueless to that. They had no idea at all. No, if anybody knew of the righteousness of God, the Jews did. They had the Old Testament. The oracles of God given to them directly, the full truth of how someone saved—that they knew from Moses on, and from even before—that God had to do something or no one was saved. But they rejected that. They allowed their feelings to rule the day. They interpreted what God said to mean that if they were zealous about the keeping of the rules, that they would be righteous. But their zeal misplaced. They misplaced the truth in their own zeal. They left it out. Notice what verse 4 says. Because Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You see, the law that God gave led them in the right direction. The law is perfect and holy and righteous. There's nothing wrong with the law. They started to try to keep the law, thinking that if they kept it, they would be righteous. And yet the law continued to show them over and over and over and over and over again, you cannot do it. They knew what God said. If you're going to keep the law and you're going to be righteous by the law, then you better keep the whole law. For if you fail in one part of the law, you fail in the whole law. And every one of them was a failure in some part of the law. So they knew they couldn't do it. That's where the law takes you. It takes you to the place of utter failure, of utter hopelessness. The place where you say, I can't do this. Somebody's got to do something. And the end of that place, guess who you find? Christ. Christ. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Christ is the end of utter hopelessness for everybody who sees the reality Christ is the fulfillment. Christ is the end. Christ is the completion. Christ is the one who saves. Christ is the righteousness. The law only leads you to Christ. Why? Because attempting to keep the law, you quickly understand you can't reach righteousness through your efforts. You see, the Pharisees rejected Christ because they misunderstood the law. They had a zeal without knowledge. They misunderstood the demand of God's righteousness. They thought that sin was only an outward activity. That sin was outside. That as long as I didn't do this outwardly, that I was okay. But the righteousness of God reveals the heart. Jesus even said that. You have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that even if you look upon a woman with Lust in your eyes—you've already committed adultery. Guess what Jesus was saying? Yeah, you can say on the outside that haven't committed adultery, but on the inside you're an adulterer. You're guilty of the law. You have heard it said that you shall not murder, but I say to you, don't even hate someone, because that's where it's born. And if you hate someone, you're as guilty of the law as someone who actually carries out the act. Pharisees totally got it wrong. They thought they didn't need a savior. Why? Because they were saving themselves. You see, the whole problem with the Jews was that they thought that they knew what the law of God demanded. And they were zealous for it. But it was a misplaced zeal. Their knowledge was flawed, imprecise. Paul says, brother, in my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for salvation. The only thing that's going to help them is God. Listen, election and the doctrine of God's sovereignty in election shouldn't sit, have us sit back in our chairs and do nothing. It should cause us and drive us to the place of prayer because we know that if God doesn't do something, no one's saved." Paul said to the Corinthians, he, that is God, God the Father, made him, God the Son, to be sin for us. So that we, the believer, those whom God changed, those whom God did something in, might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the only way to righteousness. It's through Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. The name Jesus Christ. Since we understand that God is sovereign in salvation, and it's my exhortation to us this morning that we pray and desire have a desire for the lost to be saved. And from that desire and that prayer for the lost to be saved, let us be precise in our understanding and our explanation of the truth. Let us be precise so that our zeal to see others saved doesn't become like the seeker-sensitive movement or the emerging church movement or any other ism kind of movement within evangelicalism that has taken the stage over this last few centuries let us not have a misplaced zeal Jesus Christ is the only one who saves so if you understand the sovereignty of God and if you understand the depravity of man then you understand that you need to pray and You understand that without God, none of us will be saved. And so you have a zeal, a zeal that's properly placed, placed where God would have it. And understand a little more of the contrast between the righteousness of doing and the righteousness of believing. we get more next time. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time this morning. This opportunity just to be in your word and to highlight who you are, the greatness of your majesty, the wonder of your sovereignty and how you save your people from their sin. Lord, we sit here as testimonies of your grace, instruments of mercy, not because somehow we figured it out and we got it right, but simply because of your mercy upon us who didn't deserve anything. So let us not believe that in your sovereignty we can do nothing and just sit back because after all you'll save everybody. We understand that the means to that end is God-given desire in our hearts for the lost and so we pray that you would save, save our children, save our relatives, save our family members, our spouses, save our friends, save our co-workers, save our neighbors, save our government, save our leaders. Lord, save. Cause a revival to happen that people would see their sinfulness and turn to You. May the Gospel be strong in the hearts and minds of people and may it not return empty. Lord, allow us to be bold in our proclamation. Not being fearful, but courageous. Be bold to say what needs to be said when it needs to be said with empathy and patience trusting you that you will accomplish your great purposes. Lord, may we never follow our feelings for feelings' sake. Help us to trust in your word and your word alone, to stand there knowing that you are a great God who is only accomplishing your purposes for your great honor, for your will to be done, for the glory of your Son and the glory of you in heaven forever and ever. And however you go about accomplishing that, we will praise you to the end. All God's people said, Amen.